0: The upcoming Earth Day will be a global event celebrated by governments and opinion makers around the world. The almost universal celebration of environmentalism is a testament to the tremendous success of the Green Movement, which within just a few decades has become probably the most widely accepted social movement in history. How and why did this happen? Today, we're going to discuss the historical roots of environmentalism and the ominous significance of its triumph in the battle of ideas. So welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we are going to discuss the dark history of of environmentalism. My name is Ben Baer. I am a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. With me is my colleague, Nikos Satirakoupolis, visiting fellow and director at uh, ARI Europe. Uh, Welcome, Nikos. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to welcome our Clubhouse listeners, uh, where we are continuing our experiment of simulcasting our podcast uh, right from the top. If you're listening on Clubhouse right now, um, stick around. Uh, It'll be just Nikos and uh, I talking for a while, but you'll be able to join the conversation as you normally would on Clubhouse in about an hour once we're done. So Nikos, you were, I think, one of the ones who wanted to have this conversation. We're doing a whole series of uh, talks on uh, environmentalism in the context of Earth Day this week. This is our first. Uh, why do you think it's so interesting to talk in particular about the history of the environmental movement? I know it's something you know a lot about. What, what, what is interesting about it to others?
1: So as you said in your opening, environmentalism is the most, not only the most successful social movement, but notice how quickly it became so successful. So let's say Rachel Carson in 1962 writes Silent Spring. So we're talking about six decades. And within six decades, it gets this universal acceptance within, across the political spectrum, left and right, within education, within policymaker, within international institutions. Now, what is particularly interesting, though, is that if we go back to its history, This movement was not supposed to be, uh, for example, endorsed by the left, which today it is endorsed. The left started by promising industrialization, progress. And then after the 60s, we, we see the unholy marriage of left and environmentalism. Or if we go back to its history, we see that at the beginning, environmentalists had a completely different character. Today we have in our mind maybe the middle class urban let's say hippie for lack of a better word, mostly in the, in the 60s, as the personification of this movement. And this, this movement starts from people who were, you would say more, in a way, rough, uh, people who were uh, into the wilderness to explore, to, to find new paths. So it had a completely different character. So that's why I think it's very interesting to find these roots of environmentalism and also how does a movement, which in its essence in its essence, is so radical, happens to be so easily accepted by the mainstream. Maybe radical is not the right word, but I would say puts the very essence of our life, of the way of our life, puts the very essence of our life in question, and yet it's so easily accepted. That's the questions I'm interested in discussing and in exploring.
0: Yeah, and at the top, we were talking about the environmental movement as a, as a successful movement. I think it's worth you know, clarifying what we mean by that is successful from a sociological perspective, winning hearts and minds, not so much that it's a good movement and that it will have good impacts, but it, it really is remarkable how quickly it has won hearts and minds and how it seemingly come up from nothing in, ju- in just a few hundred years. And many of the environmental ideas that we'll, we'll talk about, the idea of the, the value of pristine nature the the value that it's good to leave well enough alone, they seem like common sense to a lot of, of the urban liberal liberal hippie types that you that you mentioned previously, and, and broader than that, even, I think. And yet it all it wasn't always this way. It this wasn't always the common sense of the age. And you might argue, you might think that, well, we've, we've learned a lot in the last uh, few hundred years that that's maybe part of what's influenced public opinion. And certainly uh, there have been scientific discoveries uh, in Darwinian biology, which explains how each species is developed uh, for a particular ecological niche. The, the whole modern science of ecology, which reveals real facts about uh, complex interactions and interconnections among different organisms because of how they're adapted. And yeah, there's even, there's even a nation science of climatology, which I think has learned new things about the way the Earth's climate works. But you can acknowledge all of the facts that these sciences have discovered when they've discovered facts. And like, some of these are younger sciences than others. And so it's a question of when they really have discovered facts. But when they have, I think you can acknowledge these facts these scientific discoveries and still disagree with the with the policy conclusions that the environmentalist movement is pushing. And there's then a question of, well, what is it that's really making the difference? What is it that's really accounted for this radical change in viewpoint? Uh, is it is it simply scientific discoveries or is there something deeper that accounts for this value perspective shift that we've seen in the West? And um, Nikos, you know a fair bit about the, the history of the movement, and maybe you should take us uh, on a bit of a tour in that regard.
1: So let's start our tour, and not from most people would expect, which is the 60s, but actually from the end of the previous century. So we start from 1892, and why this is an important date? It's because it's about the founding of Sierra Club, one of the biggest environmental uh, organizations in, in, in the world. So we are after the triumph of the Industrial Revolution, but also after the huge change that the Industrial Revolution has brought about. So there are many people who embrace this change, but most thinkers and most people who are trying to grapple with this change. So an obvious example is Marx. He's trying to grasp exactly what's happening, and he gives his explanation about uh, his evaluation of this phenomenon. Now, for many people... They, in a way simplistic and, and simple evaluation of this is that what has happened is that the beautiful life as we knew it is over and it's over mostly forever. So our towns, our uh, cities are now uglified. their factories, their chimneys, they're dirty and indeed they were very dirty. So suddenly now nature seems as this retreat. It's almost as this lost heaven, as this, as this lost kingdom where things could be as they used to be. And of course, we can think of romanticism here, of of this idealization of nature of something clear, as something pristine. And yet, although we could again see this as a very interestingly conservative idea, so notice that the roots of environmentalism in some way are conservative, that we want to preserve what existed. And for example, Marx is criticizing the Industrial Revolution, but he's also very critical of the people who want to go back. And yet, this romanticism towards the past, this romanticism towards nature, which is mostly mostly popular among people from the upper classes, is expressed through this movement of conservation. So the idea is we want to conserve whatever nature still exists, and we want to keep it untouched from human beings. And yet there's a difference, I think, from later expressions of environmentalism. And we can discuss whether this difference is significant. That there's still a very anthropocentric character to this environmentalism. So the idea is we want to preserve nature for our enjoyment. So listen to the motto of Sierra Club. The motto is to explore, enjoy, and protect the wild places of the earth explore, enjoy, and protect for us. So you can also notice the religious character here, the the character of stewardship that we as the superior being have to take care to protect nature. So at that time then, environmentalism, the idea is protect nature, but protect it from a viewpoint where still sees humans as the superior being and actually as having uh, as having a superiority vis-a-vis everything else in nature which is why we need to take care of it.
0: Yeah those two strands that you mentioned of the environmental movement of the preserving it for humankind but what needs to be preserved is something pristine are I think two strands that end up coming apart and one of them wins out over the other and it's worth thinking about why and the the fact that, I mean, the way you put it was in a way it's a, it's a deeply conservative movement, I think is, is a more profound point than more people realize. And when you, when you figure out what exactly it is that's really trying to be conserved and what the idea about what to conserve that wins out, that has a big impact on the history. And I think you're quite right to situate this in the context of the Industrial Revolution, in part, that's because this is the way most people think about it. They think of the Romantic movement and and the the nature uh, worship movement as coming out of the Industrial Revolution. They think of it as that because, uh, as you say, uh, you know William Blake sees the dark satanic mills. They've made the countryside dirty. They're it's, they, they're rebelling against it, and there's something about that that's true. Um, but the the question is, what is it they're then trying to preserve in in undertaking this rebellion. And I think that one important historical clue here to understanding why and how this happened is that before the industrial revolution, if you go back and look at the writings of historians and travelers who are going out and uh, you know, leaving civilization, venturing out into the wilderness, the view that they get that they give you of the value of nature is very different uh, from what you might expect your typical environmentalist to hold today. Uh, they regard wilderness as deserted, savage, barren, desolate, as a wasteland, as satanic. If you know your New Testament, it's the, way, it's, the it's in the wasteland of the wilderness where Satan tempts Christ. There's a reason for that. Um, this, this view holds uh, you know, at least up through the 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, there's an account, for instance, when the Puritan pilgrims came to Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, they regarded the American wilderness as devilish. Uh, one of them, Nathaniel Morton wrote of uh, Plymouth, what could they see but a hideous and desolate wilderness full of wild beasts and wild men. Um, you know, this is around the time, uh, the enlightenment is happening and it it starts to become popular for people from, uh, Europe, from England to do the grand tour down through the Alps in Italy. Uh, and the Alps are not yet the great, impressive, uh, beautiful, pristine thing that everybody, uh, now thinks that they are. Uh, one traveler, James Howell saw the Alps as monstrous excrescences of nature. And, while we're on the subject of mountains, I wanna share with you one of my favorite anecdotes about uh, this kind of change in perspective. And I will uh, add a visual aid uh, to make this uh, evident. So this is a picture that I actually took of uh, Pikes Peak, Colorado Springs, Colorado. This was out my back window uh, when I was teaching at Colorado College back in uh, 2008, 2009. Of course, the reason that I took this picture was because I thought it was rather beautiful. Um, however, this was not always the view. Uh, there was a tourist of the t- at the time around 1879 who wrote a popular uh, travel account of his travels through the West uh, named W.D. Uh, Bickham. And uh, here's what he wrote about Pike's Peak. The dreariness of the desolate peak itself scarcely dissipates the dismal, the dismal spell for you stand in a confusion of dull stones piled upon each other in odious ugliness. This is the same peak he's talking about that you might know is the one that inspired Catherine Lee Bates, when she was also at Colorado College, to write about the Purple Mountain's majesty in America, the beautiful. So this is quite a shift between the kind of pre-industrial view where nature is barren and devilish and hideous to after the Industrial Revolution, where we're talking about Purple Mountain's majesty, where it's... They start to see it as a, as a as, as garden of Eden, as a, a window to heaven. And what's satanic is the mills, is the dark satanic mills of civilization. And what the heck could possibly account for this change in thinking? You might think that it's, that the industrial revolution has made everything dirty, but they, they were thinking that nature was dirty and dangerous before the industrial revolution.
1: One important- and, and that, yeah, another example, Another example on what you said, just uh, care to me, is whales. So mm-hmm. the whale was always the beast. And in the battle between the whale and the, the, the whaleman was actually the, the heroic figure. It was the David versus the Goliath. And who was the Goliath? Of course, the whale. And notice how in the 20th century, particularly after the 60s with Greenpeace's campaign, we have a complete reversal of the, of the role. Now, the whale hunter is the Goliath, is the beast, and the whale is, uh, we're, we're cheering for the whale. So uh, there's something very interesting in this, uh, in this reversal that you mentioned. Sorry, continue.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it's, it's impossible to make sense of the reversal using the typical formula that things got dirtier. Because why did they have such a negative view of nature before that? And a really good place to look is in the the intellectual currents that are running through the culture at the time in that transitional period. It's especially interesting to look at the writings of people like Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant. And they have this idea of the sublime. Uh, And what's new about this idea of the sublime is that it's not just nature is pretty. It's that nature is beautiful and awesome, but, because of the fact that it's vast and distant and dangerous. And so the, you see that elements of both uh, periods kind of cobbled together at this point in thinking it's, it's dangerous and hideous, but that's what makes it beautiful in some strange way. With the Romantic poets, you get the idea that it's in this vastness and infinity where God shows his face. I think that the the idea of the sublime, the idea coming from the Romanticists and from, uh, uh, from Burke and Kant, what, what you're seeing here is a, the process of the secularization of Judeo-Christian values in search of a new object of worship and a new object of sacrifice. Uh, and that's, that's what this kind of nature worship is now starting to give us. Um, how would this happen exactly? One way that I think is interesting to think about it is that you, it's, you can only start to think of pristine nature as, as beautiful in its own right in spite of its danger, in spite of its vastness, et cetera, if it's after the Industrial Revolution. When the actual terror of trying to live in nature has subsided and, and nature has become comfortably distant, because you now have the fruits of the industrial revolution, which make life so much easier. You don't have to worry about dying on a mountaintop uh, or dying in the wilderness because you have agriculture and you have technology. And so then, when things get comfortable enough that people can start venturing out into nature from the cities, uh, and they they see this natural landscape that they've 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 not uh, been in touch with for a little while. The way I think of it is it's like, uh, it's like when you watch a scary movie from the comfort of your couch. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, there's a pleasure in being scared because you know you're not really uh, going to be uh, threatened by anything that you're seeing. I think there's something very similar going on in the way that uh, people are having this aesthetic response to nature only after the Industrial Revolution.
1: And, and it we, is sorry, a new... We see, this even too... we see this today in the developing world. I don't see much appreciation of nature on people who have daily to struggle with nature to get their water or to fight mosquitoes or whatever the danger they are, they, they, they are facing is So, so there's, there's something that chronically correct in what you said. Yeah. And it's,
0: it's not that I'm not even saying that like, this is a response on behalf of people in the West that is, uh, uh, irrational or anything i think when they find themselves in this new situation they're going to have new experiences and new and and new ways of processing the world around them the question is then how do you interpret that how do you interpret these new aesthetic experiences that's going to require some philosophical guidance but the guidance that the west gets at this point is kant's kant's emasculation of reason and Romanticism is really overt celebration of irrational feelings, and that's going to have consequences down the road for where modern environmentalism comes from. And um, there's a lot that happens in the course of the 19th century in that regard, but I think maybe it's a good time to fast forward a bit, something a little bit more recognizable to us, and that's the 20th century and the 1960s.
1: So the 20th century, again, if we start from the early move from the early steps of the left, we actually see the idea that nature is to be conquered. So in the, let's say, optimist period, the early stages at Soviet Union, I mean, intellectually optimist from their point of view, their idea was nature is the ultimate enemy. Nature is a limit that is to be overcome. But then as the optimism fades, as the terror gets in to replace optimism, then we also have the horror of the First World War, of course, and the Second World War, and the, the threat of a nuclear war above our heads, then people start trying again to understand what happened. So we have very prominent intellectuals like the Frankfurt School, for example, Marcuse, Adorno, Horkheimer, trying to understand what led to this horror, what led to the horrors of the 20th century. And they make what, in my opinion, is a huge mistake. They think that because the horror took the form of, quote, industrial massacres like industrial in terms of their scale and their efficiency like the holocaust or it took this the, the the form of military technology such as a nuclear bomb they said that the problem lies in one our use of reason what they call it instrumental rationality and technology now this is a very 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 uh, uh, basic view of what they said but for many people this is what stays in their mind that we we are a bit like that uh, like icarus we try to fly too high and in a way we challenged our fate and now we have created a monster technology that we cannot control so getting in the 50s and the 60s you have this mix on the one hand skepticism about technology On the other hand, as something destructive. On the other hand, and we have to acknowledge this, we have some very objective and real problems. An example is pollution. For example, we have in the early 50s, the smog in London, which is a combination of bad weather and pollution, which has cost the lives of, according to some accounts, thousands and thousands of people. Or we have rivers that are so polluted that you throw a cigarette from a boat and the river catches, uh, catches fire. So Cleveland these Cleveland are problems and these times. ideas come together. And at the same time, we have the war in Vietnam, which suddenly starts, sorry, which progressively starts uh, escalating. So a young person looks around and they say, I'm threatened. I'm threatened from technology. My, my health is threatened. And also this whole system that we have created does not work for me because I might get drafted in Vietnam. And what are we actually doing in Vietnam? And uh, these are poor people and we are rich. Why do we go to war with these poor people? And this creates, uh, let's say, a mix that makes environmental more relevant. And what was needed was the one moment, the, 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 the flame that would ignite the fire. And that was, of course, Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, 1962, 60 years ago. It was about the supposed horrors of DDT, which was a pesticide. Rachel Carson was very good in dramatizing her uh, message. So she cre- why Silent Spring? Because the birds are not singing anymore. So we created this horrendous world where the birds are not singing. And because also she knew her communication, it's published in. Uh, it was not published initially as a book, but in small segments in popular newspapers. And suddenly, environmentalism becomes the concern of, let's say, the housewife who reads the newspaper or the guy who had no idea about that, but suddenly says, hey, there are chemicals and pesticides in our food and what's going to happen to us. And soon this becomes also, she has some, Rachel Carson has some sympathetic ears in the White House. So this, in a way, is the beginning of the environmental movement. So notice again the two different streams leading to the same sea. On the one hand, the countercultural, but on the other hand, also the political establishment jumping on this bandwagon. So this is this is a dichot- not a dichotomy. How to put it? This is a combination that you will see throughout the environmental movement: a radical idea that rejects some of the basic premises of society, but at the same time finding sympathetic ears in politics. And making this a a, a, poli- a let's say respectable political movement, a political campaign. And of course, a political movement can't
0: become powerful or influ- influential unless there's a large number of people who politicians think, uh, whose votes politicians think that they can win over, and so the change happens on the ground it happens on the ground with these different cultural movements within the minds of people and so the big question is why do people why do people's minds change why do they get these new ideas and i think you've you've mentioned a number of important ingredients there nikos i mean the 1960s are turbulent times there's you know by anybody's standards there's a lot to try to figure out what's going on and 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 why and people are in search of guidance and there are, I mean, there are real problems, as you mentioned, pollution's a real problem, uh, what do you do about it? There's, there's a war in Vietnam where, where uh, not only people are dying, but forests are burning down. And so you, you try to, and, and these look like a package, and this is where you need a philosopher to come on the scene and separate the elements of the package, try to uh, untangle all the different strands to evaluate what's going on. But in the mainstream of philosophy, what do you have going on in the 60s? Well, more or less what you have is a, a completion, a solidification of the Kantian revolution that had started way back in the in the 1780s. Uh, Kant, I, the way I put it was he emasculated reason. He, he's, he's known as a champion of so-called pure reason, but it's it's reason that doesn't have a lot to do with the world. And one consequence of that that you see culturally and intellectually in this period in the West is on the one hand, you get... The advocates of reason of this period are the people they call the logical positivists. And they are champions of science and reason, but they also think that science and reason have nothing at all to say about questions of value, that value judgments are just uh, emotive expressions that are unscientific. uh, And so in effect, philosophy can give no guidance on questions of value, just at the time when guidance from philosophy is most needed. the other major, uh, wing you have in Western philosophy is the is the existentialists, the, uh, the phenomenologists. And they are very concerned with values and very concerned with what it means to choose uh, a path in life in this turbulent period. They also happen to think and agree with the positivists uh, that reason has nothing to say about how to make those choices. They're overtly irrationalist and overtly uh, celebrating feelings and feelings are in effect, in effect, our only guide. Uh, And so the intellectuals of the period are defaulting on offering any kind of rational guidance for making sense of what's going on in the world. Um, Organized religion is waning, but because people are, the world is in tumult, people still need some kind of uh, values. You do have some people retreating further into even more irrationalist religions, so that's part of where the evangelical movement comes from in the 60s, but then among secular people who still want some kind of guidance, some kind of moral compass, some kind of value perspective, uh, it's probably not an accident that they then start to pick up on the old tradition, the old kind of quasi-secular tradition of the Romanticists and this nature worship idea. They nobody's ever disabused them of the ideas, the Judeo-Christian ideas of the morality of sacrifice. They're looking for something to sacrifice to. Philosophy hasn't given them any other rational perspective uh, to guide their lives, their, their life as far as values are concerned. All that's left is this kind of this uh, this nature worship tradition, and and uh, that's where
1: environmentalism, I think, really starts to pick up steam. And to to give a concretization about this. Urge to sacrifice. Now, we stop the historical narrative for a second, but I think it's an interesting example. Notice when you discuss with someone who is impacted by the environmentalist message, let's say with, with a, a family member or whatever, and you talk to them about something like uh, the, the ban on plastic straws. You, you proceed with the discussion and you explain, look, the data saw that it, that's completely insignificant. Your plastic straw, particularly if you're in Greece, is not going to end in the, in, 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 the, in the stomach of any whale or whatever. But their last line of defense is, yeah, but we all have to do something, which in a way it's saying we all have to give up something. So there, there's a, this is something very, very strong. And again, environmentalism is not about this uh, this idea that's about the hard data and people understand the hard data and they say we have to do something they're already they've already accepted the idea that i have to give up something and when someone comes over and says give up something and also it's for some reason and you uh, let us figure out the, the whys of the reason they're very happy to do that so i think it's i think it's very i think it's very important shall so we go back though to our to our in history and now let us find ourselves in the early 70s because something very important happens then. 1970, we have the first Earth Day. Again, under what kind of administration? Of course, by the Nixon administration. So let's put to side this idea again that environmentalism is this quote watermelon, they're green on the outside, red on the inside. No. In 1972, we have the Club of Rome uh, releasing their very famous and now uh, very influential report uh, about uh, about uh, about limits about uh, air, about the earth having uh, the limits to growth about our sources reaching an end. And again, who was the Club of Rome? Was it a radical group? No, it was a group of industrialists, opinion makers. So we see how these worries suddenly engulf almost again, across the political spectrum, and they engulf the political class. At the same time, we have the oil crisis. And this idea that our resources are coming to an end becomes more and more powerful. And there's something which is even weirder, and another factor which we wouldn't expect to boost environmentalism, but somehow it does. We have the blue marble photo taken from Apollo 17 i think in 72 this was also in, in 72 and when we see the earth from space what would we expect and Ayn run i think mentions that that we would feel confidence we would feel this for lack of a better word collective self esteem that we are good rational human beings can achieve things we can we've conquered the space and we can see the earth from a distance what is the message though the exact opposite oh, look how fragile our planet is. We only have one planet and we are ruining it. We have this, uh, this, uh, uh, this the, almost this hubris that we've achieved too much and we're destroying the planet. So in a way, at the moment of our biggest triumph, somehow through this narrative of fear, of uncertainty and of, in a way, uh, dismissing uh, our achievements, Suddenly, even the conquering of space is an alarm bell about the fact that we are putting nature in danger. So this is, let's say, the perfect mix in the early 70s where now environmentalism is part of the political agenda and is part of, for the lack of a better word, the political and quite often even the business uh, environment. And Nikos, uh, didn't you
0: also want to talk about the... Deep ecology movement and its influence right. on various so, activists.
1: So, up to this point, we had activists and we had the movement, but it was a movement without much of a philosophy. So, even for example, the Greenpeace, or uh, which is not there yet, but the the early stages of the environmental movement mostly come out of the peace movement, out of the anti-war movement, and the time that. Uh, philosophy that would be, that would accommodate this movement crystallizes. And it's the philosophy of so-called deep ecology. One of the main figures is a Norwegian philosopher called Arne Naes. And what does deep ecology tell us? It tells us, to put simple words, that nature has value in itself. So deep ecology, as opposed to shallow ecology, tells us that the point is not to protect nature for our own sake. Remember what Sierra Club says, protect and explore for our own sake. Deep ecology says not for your own sake, because you don't have superior value vis-a-vis the other inhabitants of the earth. So deep ecology is going to talk about things like bioregions. So we have to live within these, quote, bioregions which, by the way, is another way to say you should not live as a human being by changing your environment, but you should live by adapting to your environment, which is how other animals uh, live. And the idea is that we need to have a, quote, biospheric egalitarianism. Biospheric egalitarianism. And again, Ben, you mentioned about the importance of ideas that were already popular. Since egalitarianism is, is an ideal, why? only egalitarianism among human beings. Why not egalitarianism also among other animals? Now, if you take this idea seriously, soon you realize that they are going to lead you to paths that are unthinkable. For example, should the humans intervene in nature when they are in danger? Should, for example, they fight uh, viruses? Or what about the fact that more human beings will need the, the, to, quote, use more source, more resources? Should Maybe should we stop uh, births? So you see then again the rise of Malthusianism, the idea that there are too many people on planet Earth. Of course, you've got Paul Ehrlich in the late 60s with his ridiculous predictions. And you have these ideas gaining ground. And again, this idea we need to think what is its logical conclusion. This idea that all, everything in nature has its own inherent value and has nothing to do with human beings. And there was one deep ecologist, a guy called Bill Deval, who asks, who gave us this thought experiment. He said, let's say there is a room. And in this room, it's cold outside, so no one can go outside. And in this room, you have a baby and a rattlesnake. What do you do? Now, the proper deep ecologist, again, if we want to have biospheric egalitarianism, the only answer is, I mean, you basically do nothing. Because again, if you throw the rattlesnake out, it will die. It's cold. If you throw the baby out, it will, call, it's, it's, it's cold. It will die. You cannot kill the rattlesnake because then you'd say the baby has higher value than the rattlesnake. So what do you do? And what's amazes me is not the thought experiments and the quality of the morality of deep ecology. What amazes me is that deep ecology is considered a respectable a respectable set of ideas. It's like, yeah, maybe it gets a bit too far. So, for example, you see Arne Nas, who is the philosopher behind deep ecology, although he, the rattlesnake and baby experiment was not his, but you see him being of high esteem you see him getting awards, and you see him getting an intellectual pat on the back. So this is deep ecology, and someone could tell us, come on. Now, no one takes deep ecology seriously, but I'm very curious on what's your take on whether deep ecology is a fringe uh, part of outsiders, or if it has something to do with the essence of environmentalism.
0: I mean, sociologically speaking, it's you might call it fringe, but often what you see on the fringes of society are the distilled essences of society's ideas trying to work their way into the center. And I think that's what's been happening. Uh, And yeah, Arnie Ness, uh, who is a Norwegian philosopher, dates were 1912, 2009, was the main theoretician of deep ecology. I think not a lot of people know about him or about the amount of influence he had. I mean, these days he's comparable to somebody like And more people probably know about Peter Singer, who's a uh, theoretician of ethics, who's also had a popular uh, move, an effect on the popular movement called Effective Altruism. Uh, Ness had a similar influence on many different environmental activists, uh, including like the Earth First terrorist types who who took seriously his idea of biological egalitarianism that you just mentioned. And if you think about it, the uh, that if you study Ness's writings, you'll, you'll find that his philosophy is in a way, kind of a perfect counterpoint to environment, uh, to enlightenment individualism, as opposed to individualism. He's a, he's a holist. He thinks there are no separate individuals. We're all one. The reason we should have concern for nature is because we are part of nature and there aren't meaningful separations. And that's the basis, uh, in, for that egalitarian view that you mentioned. He's a panpsychist who thinks that, uh, nature and mind are internally intertwined. And so it's not the job of reason to be imperialistic and try to discover facts outside of it and then try to uh, craft nature to its purposes. Uh, He's, uh, like I said, he's, he's this ecocentrist who thinks every part of the ecosystem has a special right to exist. And since we're part of that same system, it's all of equal importance to us. Politically speaking, then he advocated the opposite of uh, laissez-faire capitalism, he, he advocated radical de-development. We need to move our economy backwards and uh, grow less and shrink and move into these bioregions. And that's the way in which he's the uh, he's distinct from what they call the shallow ecologists. They see that there are these problems, uh, these real environmental problems. This is more like the old-fashioned Sierra Club view you mentioned. Uh, we want to preserve things, but for human beings. Deep ecologists are opposed to this anti- this anthropocentrism. Uh, we, we shouldn't try to use technology to solve our problems because technology is what caused the problem in the first place. Uh, and Ness is a really interesting figure because he's, he started out philosophically being schooled by the more uh, logical positivist types, the analytic philosophers who were interested in questions about logic and language. Uh, but then at a certain point, he sort of abandoned his work in that field and and moved into becoming a theoretician of deep ecology uh, it's almost, and he was also influenced by Rachel Carson, uh, so it's almost as if the uh, the champions of logic and reason in defaulting on providing any guidance about how to formulate rational values uh, didn't have anything more to help him with, and so he just moved on uh, to take up to pick up on these uh, currents that are running through the culture that they've inherited from the romanticists uh, 150 years ago and. To then spring it on the public at a time when there are these real problems that people need guidance to solve, uh, it's it's a perfect storm, and then that it's starts a, it, to have real political consequences.
1: And it's you you mentioned uh, you mentioned Earth First. So there were people who took these ideas very very seriously, and I want to talk a bit about Earth First. Uh, this was a radical environmental group that. Not so much because it was any massive movement, but it tried to take these ideas seriously. So, and also it tells something interesting about about American, in a way, environmentalism. So, there was a guy called uh, Edward Abbey who wrote uh, who wrote uh, the Monkey the Monkey Rents uh, the Monkey Rents Gang. So, this was a book about uh, about a group of friends who are in in the depth of the United, what we'd call today, quote, rednecks. And they return from a military deployment and they find that their territory has been taken over by developers. And they, uh, they create a sabotage. They go and attack the industrial development. And there were some guys who took this seriously. They retreated to the wilderness because, again, the idea was we need to get away from the, the, of, of this repressive urban environment of reason and in nature we can find ourselves. So they would hold to the moon and do things like that. And influenced by deep ecology, they create a group called Earth First. And its creator was a guy called Dave Foreman. I mean, he's, uh, he's still around. And again, very different from the urban hippie character. And what they do, so you call them terrorists, but when I was being taught uh, uh, social movements, the idea was that it was a non-violent movement because it did not attack human beings. It only attacked property. So they did two things. The one was they did the so-called tree spiking. So you go to a tree, you put a spike in the tree, then the spike is not visible, and the chainsaw of the logger comes into contact with the spike, and the chainsaw, which is very expensive, uh, breaks and is severely damaged, or they would throw like uh, sugar in the uh, where the petrol is in 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 the trucks, and of course the trucks wouldn't work. And actually, he even he even w- wrote a book which is called uh, Eco Defense, a guide, a field guide to monkey wrenching on how you can do quote eco sabotage. And of course, this book was in a in my university library because again, these people are idealists. Maybe they go to extreme. Yeah, maybe there was this uh, logger who the chainsaw exploded in his face and he almost lost his life and he lost his face. But, you know, these things happen. So although, again, Earth First, at some point, their ideas became too toxic, uh, uh, mostly in terms of, look, either too many human beings, maybe HIV is not that bad or maybe a, a virus in Africa killing some people there because there seems to be too many people there. Maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. So these were their toxic ideas who made them irrelevant. But what I found interesting is that Dave Foreman then finds a position in the board of Sierra Club, and which makes you think that, is it that mainstream environmentalists find these ideas really reprehensible? Or is it that they find it, okay, this is kind of bad publicity, but we are all a group of friends here. And interestingly, what got Dave Foreman, the founder of Earth First, kicked out from Sierra Club was not anything to do with his horrible Malthusian views or with his idea that we have to destroy industrial endeavors to save the wilderness. It was his racism. It was his ideas about immigration and about how we shouldn't import people from the third world because, uh, I don't know, then the population is going to go up. So again, not super important movement in terms of, in terms of uh, numbers, but important in terms of effect. And Ben, you might have seen also the TV series Whale Wars, right? With Captain Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd Society. So someone who allegedly has sunk ships or who is okay with the rumor that he has sunk whale ships, who has the treatment of a celebrity. So again, what I understand is that we are winking to the radical environmentalists, to the violent environmentalists, and tell them, look, you do your thing so that we, the more mainstream, now appear as very reasonable and very rational. And by the way, this has a name, the radical flank effect. Greenpeace shows up and suddenly Sierra Club looks like the Moderates. Then Sea Shepherd Society shows up and then uh, Greenpeace looks like the Moderates and then Air First and so on till we get to the Earth Liberation Front and Animal Liberation Front which literally blow up stuff uh, in terms of uh, uh, medical uh, laboratories and, and things like that. So this is the development of radical environmentalism Uh, It hasn't been around in terms of uh, action so much, particularly since 9-11. But you could say that a lot of the groups that are very big today, like, for example, uh, Extinction Rebellion, have some of the premises of radical environmentalism without the alienating in terms of uh, most of the mainstream, let's say, opinion, uh, tactics, or the bad optics of like blowing up stuff or spiking uh, trees. So Nikas, where so those are kind of the fringe movements, but we've been,
0: we've been talking about how very often when you see uh, fringe movements, they are taking some idea to its logically consistent end, and that ends up working its way into the center of a society. So what happens in the 1980s and the, and the 1990s when uh, some of these ideas start to
1: get political currency? So not only they get political currency, they become political principles of policy making on an international level. And the obvious example is towards the end of the eighties and the beginning of the 90s, when you have the so-called Rio Declaration about sustainable development. And notice the definition of sustainable development. This says, quote, development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So this idea is, we've all agreed that we need to sacrifice, let's say, for the poor, we need to sacrifice for a developing world, blah, blah, blah. But what about sacrificing also for nature and also sacrifice for the future generations? So we need to curb our progress for the sake of the future generations. So this is one major important. And again, why is this major? Because these are not just words. For example, when you're a developing country and you want to get, I don't know, some uh, help, some uh, international aid, you might be measured vis-a-vis whether your development model is in accordance with sustainable development. And I, want, I think sometimes, how would our life be today? if the people in the 19th century or in the 50s thought, quote, about sustainable development. I'm so glad that they didn't care about sustainable development and we inherited this world that we inherited. And another principle that also makes it to the mainstream and has profound impact is the principle is the so-called precautionary principle, which means that whenever there is a doubt on whether a project or something new is going to have an effect on the environment, which basically means... Always, then it is up to the developer to prove that there will not be any damage. Readers of Atlas Rugged, this will sound familiar, right? With Reardon Metal. How can you prove to us, Mr. Reardon, that the bridge is not going to collapse in 30 years or something like that? This is the precautionary principle. And I mean, I'm in awe in how Ayn Rand managed to figure this out already from the late 50, 40s or the 50s or whenever she wrote that particular part of uh, of Atlas Rag. So again, what we've seen is a radical, a radical flank, let's say, in the movement, but also the movement making significant steps in the mainstream. We have Green Parties from the early 80s entering parliaments. We have Green Parties later entering governmental coalitions. Germany is an example. And we have or the Tory parties, for example, later in the 2000s, even changing their logo to something which is more green-friendly, like the, the tree. So this is how environmentalists make its way to the mainstream and has a very real and significant impact to our everyday life and to the prospects that we have to, to develop. And, sorry, one more thing. What is it? Is it possible for the developing countries to have development that is, quote, sustainable, So the idea is that we're doing this also for the poor of this world. And actually what we're doing is we are taking away the opportunity they have to to develop.
0: Yeah, and I think one uh, also unappreciated factor that you have to take into account when understanding how it was that these seemingly fringe ideas started to make their way into the center of our cultural discourse is is. Uh, something important about the dynamics of the left, politically speaking. Um, and this is a point that is uh, uh, not original to me. This is the this is the argument that Ayn Rand makes in her essay, The Left, Old and New. I'll give uh, links to that later at the end of the show. But her observation was that the, the old left, the Marxist left, had for so many years promised uh, to create a paradise on earth uh, through science and industry. And... Obviously toward the middle of the 20th century, it became obvious that Marxist regimes were not delivering on this, especially at the end of uh, World War II. It was increasingly clear that collectivism couldn't produce, that it was the free capitalist nations of the West that were the ones that were winning. Uh, And the the old left, which had been on this pro-industry, pro-science footing starts to uh, get demoralized and Rather than saying, "Well, we were wrong," I guess maybe the the way to uh, have a scientific and industrial society is through capitalism. You you see their uh, the mask fall and you see their true colors come out. And instead of saying uh, so much the worse for collectivism, let's let's uh, let's really embrace science and industry. They say so much the worse for science and industry. Let's embrace ecology. Let's embrace environmentalism, uh, and. It, what what this does in part is it, it reveals what was really motivating many of them all along, that it wasn't really the, the, the science and industry that they pretended to be champions of. It was really their kind of hatred for human ability. Uh, and this is a view that has become uh, increasingly mainstream. You see it operating today uh, in, I think, many provisions of the New Deal, where there's there are the Green New Deal, where there are still... Uh, fig leaves for talking about uh, technology, they wanna have green technology. But when you when you look at what these forms of technology actually are, it's clear that they're not going to be able to produce anything close to the energy that, that we need. And, and they are increasingly starting to embrace that, though not overtly, that kind of de-development spirit and ethic that the deep ecologists have been pushing. And all of that really brings to the forefront something that you started with Nikos, the the sense in which there's something deeply conservative uh, about the environmentalist movement. If what you mean by conservative is wanting to conserve the values of the past, Uh, you especially see that with that precaution, the embrace of the precautionary principle that you just mentioned, wanting to embrace the way that nature they think has, has always been and to leave well enough alone. And I want to uh, put up a passage from Ayn Rand from a different essay that she wrote, her essay, The Anti-Industrial Revolution, where I think she does a really excellent job bringing out that premise in what she calls the ecology movement of the time, but which is, I think, in effect, the same thing as the environmentalist movement. Um, And you'll see what is that old premise that the environmentalists are trying to conserve she makes this quite explicit she says uh in their cosmos in in confrontation with nature and its modern policy impetus is in confrontation with nature their plea is leave well enough alone do not upset the balance of nature do not anger the unknowable demons who rule it all in their cosmology man is infinitely malleable controllable and dispensable nature is sacrosanct It's only man and his work, his achievement, his mind that can be violated with impunity while nature is uh, not to be defiled by a single bridge or skyscraper. It's only human beings that they do not hesitate to murder. It's only human schools that they bomb, only human habitations that they burn, only human property that they loot. Think here of those tree spikers that you were talking about before, Nikos. And she goes on. uh, While they crawl on their bellies in homage to the reptiles of the marshlands, whom they protect from the encroachments of human airfields and humbly seek the guidance of the stars on how to live on this incomprehensible planet. They are worse than the conservatives. They are conservationists. What do they want to conserve? Anything except man. What do they want to rule? Nothing except man. And so you, you see that kind of deeply religious idea coming out of the essence of this environmentalist movement. And while they may have substituted uh, nature for the kind of Abrahamic God of the old days, that, that's their innovation, in effect. It's not much of an innovation because it's still got all the attributes that, uh, that, that the old idea of the Abrahamic God uh, uh, was famous for. He's, it's still an object of worship. It's still an object of sacrifice. You're still supposed to give up your life for it. You're still supposed to uh, uh, retreat from worldly things and embrace uh, your love of the god, uh, in this case, nature, or the goddess, if you if you will. And so, it's also uh, uh, it's not a surprise that the those two strands of the movement that you you mentioned at the beginning, one of them ends up getting eclipsed. Uh, versus the other, the, the one that was, we are preserving nature for man. No, now it's, we're, we're sacrificing man for the sake of nature because nature is in effect the new God. Did you have any, any final thoughts on, on that part, that issue, Nikos?
1: So the final, the final thought is uh, not a thought, mostly a question in terms of thinking out loud whether these days, for example, where energy gets so expensive or some things that we consider self-evident are not self-evident in terms of how cheap they are or how available they are, will, will this actually make us see that the destructive nature of the essence of this philosophy? Or is this, an, or is this something that uh, we're going to say, oh, it's because uh, the, 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 the prices are high because of ex politician or, or Y politician? or for example when we talk about uh, when we talk about poverty in the third uh, in in the developing countries will we realize that there is only one way for them to get out of poverty so if we really care about them we should push them towards having more uh, reliable and affordable uh, energy or is this again something which is uh, which that the impact of these bad ideas is so strong that it's going to blind us from the thing that is staring us in the eye so that's, uh, so ideas are powerful. Ideas have consequences. I wonder whether we are faced with either we follow these ideas or we have a better life and whether it is staring us in the eyes, what's the decision that we will take? I'm using we as like society or the West or
0: whatever. I mean, I think that is the, that is the question of the age, which of those two responses will win out and I think that it's, it's ultimately a question of, of what kind of philosophical guidance the West is going to embrace. Because as I've been trying to stress throughout, I think there's a, there's a real problem that needs to be solved here. There are, there are real uh, environmental problems with, with, uh, with the quality of the air, the quality of the water. Um, and there is a real value that people can get from nature. I think. And that was something that they were first starting to grapple with uh, in the uh, 18th and 19th century. And what they needed was the guidance of a philosopher to to help understand what is the nature of that value that they see in wilderness? Is it what the romantics and what the uh, later the deep ecologists say? Uh, or is it something else? And whatever the answer to that question is, what does that then mean for policy if what you're trying to do is solve the problem of pollution and uh, of various kinds. Um, I wanted to close with uh, one last thought, and then we can start to look at some questions that have come in. So if you're on uh, YouTube or Zoom, please uh, please plug in those questions. We'll be looking for them. Um, I mentioned that idea that uh, there was this new kind of aesthetic experience that was coming out of the end of the Industrial Revolution as people were starting to venture out from civilization into nature. And uh, there was need a need to understand that. I likened it to you're watching a horror movie. You're, com- you're in the comfort of your home. Uh, that's part of what makes it pleasurable to look at this wild place. Um, that's not how it was interpreted, though. It was interpreted as it's a, it's, it's, there's this uh, aesthetic positive aesthetic response to wilderness because that's where God is. And so how do you end up interpreting that differently? And I just want to give one lead and one clue to everybody because there's, there's actually an interesting place in Atlas Shrugged Uh, by Ayn Rand, where where this issue is broached. And I don't even know if she was thinking about it in terms of the environmental movement at the time. She may not have been, but there's a character in the story, Hank Reardon, who's of course uh, an industrialist himself. Uh, And it's early in the book where he's uh, he's having a party and there's a storm going on outside. And he's looking outside and comparing the inside to the outside. And, And there's a version of that safety from your couch perspective here, but it's in Reardon's case, it's crystallized in a way that I think really brings out the real essence of what's going on. I'll just read the quick passage here. He says, he looked at the flowers, at the sparks of light, on the crystal glasses, at the naked arms and shoulders of women. There was a cold wind outside, sweeping empty stretches of land. He saw the thin branches of a tree being twisted, like arms waving in an appeal for help. The tree stood against the glow of the mills. He could not name his sudden emotion, He had no words to state its cause, its quality, its meaning. Some part of it was joy, but it was solemn, like the act of bearing one's head. He did not know to whom. And I think what you get there is you get this, it's also kind of quasi-religious feeling that Reardon is having. And uh, in connection with this this horrible wilderness that he's seeing outside. But to whom is he bearing his head? Is he bearing it to uh, the face of God that he's seeing uh, suddenly evident in the wilderness? Or is he bearing his head to the fact that this is a wilderness that's now put up against the the, the warm glow of his mills, those dark satanic mills, who in this case, which in this case are ones that he himself created. And I mean, I think, yeah, there is a new experience here of uh, how to grapple with the nature once you've been living in civilization for such a long time. In Reardon's case, the quasi-religious feeling comes from the fact that he knows he's the one who did it. He's the one who created this separation between nature and civilization. We're all not as responsible for it in the way that Reardon is, but there's a way in which we too can have that same kind of reverence for people like him. And I mean, I'm somebody who likes going out on a hike and I enjoy the contrast between civilization and nature, but my perspective has always been, I think what Harry Binswanger sometimes says, it's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there.
1: I couldn't top that as as an ending, so let's let's proceed to the questions then.
0: Okay, so we've got um, a few that have come in from Zoom. How does a concern about global warming and its its negative impact on man figure into this? Uh, Some, like Bill Gates, think that it's only through reason, science, and technological innovation that we can solve this problem. Uh, You have thoughts on that, Nikos, I might myself
1: too. Right. So for me, there's a litmus test question in terms of see if someone has a serious and sincere concern about uh, solving the problem of global warming, because it is indeed a problem, or they have a different agenda. And the question is, for example... What would be your take uh, on nuclear energy? Yeah, maybe it's expensive, but whatever. Would you be in favor of uh, Or what if nuclear fusion came over? Would you be in favor? Or if push comes to solve, shall we, uh, shall we try things like geoengineering? And then when you see an enthusiastic, yes, let's do these things to solve the problem, I realize, okay, we are somewhere on the same page with that person. But when I hear things like, no, because then we do more of what created the problem in the first place. Or no, then we play God. Or no, because uh, we don't learn from our mistakes. Then I realize that the problem is not global warming. There's something else, as you uh, hinted earlier, this idea that uh, achievement is something bad, that daring to do new things is something bad, intervening in nature and saying, yes, I'm Icarus who is going to fly high. I'm Icarus who is not going to be burned from the sun. So... Again, I think we have to be very, very careful when we talk about global warming, uh, not to make big statements that we don't understand, like, oh, for the next last three years, the temperature has gone down. So it's very difficult to interpret the sign. so I would be very cautious on how to do that. But in terms of what is our frame of thinking and what is our frame of values, then we have to make clear that, yes, we want to solve this problem, but do this having human flourishing, as Alex Epstein has explained this frame much better than I would do, having human flourishing as our aim and not anything else.
0: I agree with uh, what you said, and I would just add to it that, um, yeah, so the the example of, well, if you're really concerned about whatever ill effects are supposed to come from global warming, then you ought to want to do something like nuclear energy, which provides abundant. Energy, but doesn't emit any CO two. Yeah, that is a really good litmus litness test. Another one, uh, which is something that Alex Epstein has stressed, is that if if the problems that you see coming from uh, climate change have to do with human flourishing, if you're worried about people, uh, you know, getting uh, if their their homes flooded if they live in coastal areas, uh, things like that, you should also be concerned with. Uh, what kind of energy is going to allow people to deal with those problems when and if they actually occur? And uh, the anecdote I always like to give about this is, you know, they say that um, climate change has had some effect on the frequency of Atlantic hurricanes. And I don't know if that's actually true, but it's not implausible that it might. Uh, I lived in New Orleans for many years where we had hurricanes all the time. When I was there 2012 for Hurricane Isaac, uh, One of my most distinct memories is uh, being uh, without electrical power for two weeks and how terrible it was and how what everybody wanted to do if they wanted to uh, stay alive was to find gas somewhere so they could fuel up their car, get out if they needed to. uh, And if they weren't going to, they at least could use their car to um, power their cell phone. And I evacuated for a little while and I came back. And the first thing I saw in town when I came back was this parking lot filled with electrical repair trucks, uh, as far as the eye could see, getting ready to go out to fix the city's electrical grid again, which of course would not have been possible if those trucks were uh, running on uh, battery power or something like that. They needed uh, a, high, high dense, a highly dense energy that's transportable. That's the kind of energy you need if you're going to survive these climate effects. And uh, we're not gonna be able to do it if the Green New Deal um, has its way. I see another question that came in uh, that I think might be interesting to talk about. And I'm not sure if I quite understand what the person's asking, but I have something to say in response anyway. They ask, why has environmentalism saving nature and protecting the earth become the good while opposition to this philosophy has become the bad. This is not just disagreement of two opposite ideas but an attitude of condemning those who disagree as being morally corrupt. So Nikos, I bet you have something to say about this because I, part of what I think the person is picking up on is the, is the kind of tribalistic politics of the environmental movement, where perhaps it's not as um, pronounced with regard to environmental causes as it is with uh, causes that connect to uh, race and gender and diversity, but it's still there. And you know, one thought I have is this is the kind of Expectation. I wonder if you have examples of that, by the way. But this is what you would expect uh, if, if what environmentalism really is is a quasi-religious movement, where it's not mo- they're not being moved by a genuine concern for truth and evidence and science, but rather by some emotional commitment to some god of theirs, in effect, to the, or to goddess of theirs. Uh, and so there are the damned and there are the elect, and either you're one of them or you aren't. And John McWhorter uh, talks a lot about this, I think, including in connection with uh, not only uh, racial movements, but also environmental movements in his latest book. Do you have any further anecdotes or thoughts on that one?
1: So, in terms of uh, thoughts, uh, it's I wouldn't so much focus on my answer on the average, job. I would focus on how the political establishment has. Up, has has gotten this uh, this approach and I think the reason this has happened particularly since the 90s is that they were in a desperate need of moral agency of being able to say I stand for something because particularly with the disappearance of left versus right uh, division and the disappearance of any clear idea what are what do politicians stand about like what are your principles it's very easy to say yes I stand for this very vague, but which will also touch a nerve uh, idea. So it is it is a privilege. It is a very fertile ground for shallow politicians and shallow people with no ideas and no clear values to uh, I don't want to say virtue signal because it's overused, but to do something to do something like uh, to do something like that. Now, in terms of uh, in terms of tribalism, I don't know if the conservatives are mostly good on issues of energies because the left is taking the other side. But it's one of the last areas where you could see them having, uh, having some good ideas in the United States when it comes, for example, to fracking. And again, I don't know if it's tribalism, which means it's going to be short-lived, or I don't know if it's the great work of people like uh, Alex Epstein who have managed to penetrate this pilier in terms of teaching them to think Somehow, in principles, as far as conservatives are able to think in principles on these topics, so it's uh, it's not as tribal in terms of uh, in terms of uh, us versus them because at least in Europe there is no them. There is almost one monolithic uh, monolithic group, and there is there is no serious uh, there is no serious opposition uh, to these things, whether you're on the re- right or whether you're on the on the left. But again, as the right more and more distinguishes itself uh, in terms of we are not the left, maybe it will become a thing. And again, it might be important in terms of gaining some time if the conservatives become a bit more principled on how they deal with issues around the uh, the environment and the green agenda.
0: I actually just thought of an example of the us versus them in this area, which is uh, I, I was speaking with someone in energy, in the energy industry, and he was telling me about the way that a lot of... Uh, uh contemporary financial companies are now starting to make decisions about who they give loans to is informed by woke politics of one kind or another including especially uh, environmentalism and there are there are fracking companies now who just can't get loans um, in effect they've been cancelled uh, by the uh, by certain of the financial organizations and uh, that's I think the same kind of mentality and even when you present to them when you present to these uh, these bankers. Well, but you know my particular fracking company is is even more efficient than the than you know the, the stuff that we're importing from Russia. They don't care. It's you're you're part of the damned,
1: and we can only give money to the elect. That and talk, to... talk about loss of moral talk about loss of moral authority, right? Like why why when you're a business you need to fight quote a vision bigger than yourself. Uh, which has to do with environmentalism. Why not have the moral authority to say, no, I stand for this. I want to make money and I will give money to other people who are going to make money. How, what a f- breath of fresh air this would uh, this would be. But again, loss of moral authority means I need to jump in one of these campaigns. So politicians and businesses, again, no moral guidance. So no surprise that they jump on the bandwagon.
0: Yeah. And uh, the person who asked this question has to follow up further. Why do those who are being judged as being morally corrupt accept this type of condemnation? Uh, that's going to have to do with the ideas they accept too. We don't have time to answer that, but we're going to have time later this week uh, in some of the other podcasts we're doing on this subject. I think we should start to wrap up and so that I can tell you about those. And I think you'll get answers to that question in some of those podcasts as well. So I'll start uh, by... Reminding everybody that we will shortly uh, move on to Clubhouse, and uh, I think I put the wrong uh, topic on here for Clubhouse. But we'll be continuing our uh, conversation of the history of environmentalism. It's dark history there. If you're on Clubhouse now, now stay tuned. Nikos and I will be joining. Um, if as uh, so we also mentioned a few resources today, we mentioned some essays by Ayn Rand. Uh, If you'd like to find out more about the ideas that she writes about there, you can actually read the Left Old and New online uh, at ARI's website. If you go to bit.ly slash left old new, that's also reprinted in uh, Return of the Primitive. Uh, The Anti-Industrial Revolution is also reprinted in Return of the Primitive and you can see it and also listen to the lecture version of it online at bit.ly slash anti-industrial. Uh, I want to then also remind you about some of these upcoming episodes. We're doing three podcasts this week. Uh, We were just talking about fracking. And if you'd like to learn more about that, uh, we're going to be playing a recorded interview tomorrow at the usual time, uh, How Shale Revolutionized U.S. Energy. This is an interview with Nick DeUlis, who is himself in charge of a uh, fracking concern uh, out of the Midwest. That'll be tomorrow at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, the usual time slot for New Ideal. Uh, and then on Friday, which is Earth Day itself, we will be discussing environmentalism versus human life. That'll be a conversation between Ankar Gatte and Keith Lockitch, where I suspect some of the moral ideas in play here will be analyzed. The person asking about uh, why people accept this judgment as being morally corrupt will likely come up. That'll be again, Friday, Earth Day, April 22nd, 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern also want to let people know about the Q&A episode that we are doing the week about uh, that we're doing next week, a uh, week from today. Uh, we frequently do kind of generic Q&A episodes where if you have any kind of question on objectivist philosophy that you'd like to ask, we will answer your questions. And so if you, uh, that'll be a week from today, April 27th. If you have these questions, we would really like you to send them into us uh, just uh, Email newideal at aynrand.org and uh, we will take a look at your question, see if it's one that we wanna answer on air. Even if we don't, we often send you a response. Anyway, if you enjoyed our episode today and if you are looking forward to the ones that are coming up this week, uh, we appreciate your efforts to help uh, help make this possible. And uh, we have a, uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll see that there is a fundraising box in the lower right-hand corner. Uh, where you can, you can add uh, to show your support for this podcast and the others like it that we're doing in the future. I think if, uh, it looks like at least $100 has come in just during this episode. So thanks very much for that. We've got a $5,000 goal uh, by the end of the month that we're working on. And we really appreciate if you can help us add
1: to that. Last of all- Can I plug one more thing? Oh, sure. So if you enjoy the history of ideas, I would encourage people to check out a module in Ayn Rand University that I'm running with uh, Onkar Gatte. Mm-hmm. It's called The Road to Critical Race Theory. And we go back to all the ideas of the new left, of the social movements that have led from the 60s to the left as it has become today. We have a whole class on environmentalism where we elaborate on these ideas even more. So you can be either a graded student or an auditor. So go check Ayn Rand University and the module is called The Road to Critical Race Theory. So I think it's, it's worth particularly if you enjoyed this discussion, you would love that.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot more where what you saw today came from. Nikos knows a lot of this history, the history of the left in its, its widest sense. If you're following us on, if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to click that bell to, subs- uh, to get notifications when we go live, subscribe. If you're watching a recording, leave a comment, share, like, all this helps optimize the algorithm. Uh, same story. If you are, uh, if you are watching us on, uh, Facebook and last but not least, if you have any questions about what we talked about today or suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to newideal at ironrand.org. We read all of your emails. We reply to many of them. And, uh, in a moment, uh, Nikos and I will, uh, move, to Clubhouse, where those of you who are on Clubhouse right now will be able to converse with us. And if you're not on Clubhouse right now, you should go there. Just go to uh, the Ayn Rand Club on Clubhouse, and you'll see that this uh, session is already in progress. So thanks thanks for having this conversation with me, Nikos. I think this was very enlightening. Talk
1: to you see soon. See you in Clubhouse. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ben. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, Leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.